Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that never did quite finish the eighth fighting fantasy book, Scorpion Swamp. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that nobody else ever seems to, is entertainment journalist Steve O'Brien. Steve, what are you up to and where can we find it? What am I doing at the moment? I'm doing stuff for Digital Spy, SFX, Sci-Fi Now, basically about writing about the kind of stuff I've been writing about for 20 years. So and oh, I've got a book coming out in April. It's a Buffy infographic book, similar to the one I did called Who Graphica that I'm doing with Simon Guerrier. I should tell everybody that I'm not Stephen O'Brien. I'm actually Steve O'Brien. I'm not I'm not press gang guy who you've had as one of your guests before. I understand he's often getting mistaken for me. I have often got mistaken for him. A lot of people kind of want to know, you know about press gang with me, but actually I've never even seen it. It came slightly after my time. I think I was 17 when it was on. I also was on, on ITV, so kind of that was a bit sort of toxic for me. So there's, there's clear water between us as journalists. Okay, well it's really interesting you say that because the only other person I've ever heard mention your first choice is Stephen O'Brien. So let's have a listen to the theme tune and see if anyone else knows what it is. Well, or as my sister used to put it, Well, you know my name is Simon, and I sing with a lady's voice. So obviously I know what it is, but I'm sure most people listening won't do. Steve, what was that? Well, the song that you just sung was actually composed by Mike Batt, who obviously who a lot of your listeners will know. Simon and the Lunch Talk Tra- Tra- Drawings was a little five-minute series from, I think, the mid-70s, about a boy called Simon, who anything he drew with chalk that shows you how old this is, would come alive and he would enter the land of chalk drawing, which was just on the other side of his garden fence, if I recall. It was pretty scratchy. It was pretty sort of simple. It was pretty lo-fi. It was from um, Film Fair, who did uh, Paddington, Wombles and Herbs. It was narrated by Cribbins. It's just one of those series that just never gets really talked about now. It's it's odd that there are some kids' shows that are never talked about now, but Ragtime, Teddy Edward, and yet some are endlessly talked about, whether it be Bagpuss or or Camberwick Green, and you kind of get the impression that they were the only kind of kids' TV shows on in the 70s and 80s, but there were all these little ones that kind of existed in between that never get talked about. Well, I have to say that anyone who knows me in real life will know that Ragtime and Teddy Edward do get talked about a lot by me, but probably by nobody else. The interesting thing about Simon Lander Chalk drawings was I'm surprised it's not more remembered because the thing that really sticks out to me it was I remember the very first one. I'm sure this was the very first one. I remember watching it when I was a very small child and being quite disturbed by if I remember rightly, the storyline of the first episode is he first discovers Lander Chalk drawings and it's full of all these stick people that he never finished drawing. And they're all in the hospital with you know, missing limbs and so on. He eventually he decides he just draws on their limbs and they're all right again. I remember finding that quite disturbing. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're only five minutes long, so they're not exactly sort of tightly plotted, I wouldn't say. Um, they just seem to be kind of little sketches of ideas that they're just kind of uh, working out. It's an extremely kind of odd show. Yeah, wasn't there one where his sister borrowed the chalk and drew some cars and they went to land the chalk drawings and they were all chasing each other around in cars, polluting the atmosphere and he had a bit of a sort of Al Gore, O Tempera, O Mores, what have I done to the world situation. So it did have a message sometimes. Yeah, well, I mean, what, I think what appealed to me was the fact that drawing was one of my, was my sort of primary default activity. 
So the idea of kind of drawings coming to life, which actually was also in, you know, as you'll remember, in Buster magazine, there was, is it Chalky? Chalky, he's quick on the draw. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So so that idea was around. Well, I did go and watch one of these, just out of curiosity, not having seen it for a long time. And what intrigued me was, this is something I've noticed in a lot of very cheap British children's animations from the early to mid-70s. It was an episode where it had a computer, and when they switched the computer on, it made those sort of burbling, bleeping noises that they always used to represent computers then. And a lot of psychedelic patterns appeared. And the odd thing is, is it actually tied in with the fact that at that point, computers were seen as part of hippiedom, really? In that famous hippie do-it-yourself directory, the Whole Earth catalogue, much of it is adverts for computers. And just the idea of seeing a computer automatically tied in with psychedelic shapes rather than, you know, robots and zeros and ones is quite odd, really. That's something that's really been lost in time. Well, actually, yeah, what struck me was the fact that real life doesn't have any colour in Simon and the Land's children. It's only the, the, the fantasy world that is kind of sort of technicoloured and popping with different colours. It's sort of like the inversion of a matter of life and death. Simon's real life is drab and grey and, you know, a bit sort of kitchen sink, you know, whereas it goes over the wall and suddenly he's in... Uh, you know, it's, it's hell's a poppin' land. It's, you know, psychedelia. Well, I have to say, if you had found yourself in sort of existential ennui after watching Simon in the Land of Chalk Drawings, you could have reached straight for a packet of these, which would have set you straight back again. Here they come, KP Skydivers. They're new, they're exciting, they're different. They're crispy corn snacks in beef, cheese and onion, and salt and vinegar flavours. Look out for the KP Skydivers. They're new from KP. Well, I remember seeing this advert, and I also remember seething with jealousy, seeing some kids emerging from the newsagent bearing packets of these. Steve, it's pretty obvious what these were called, but tell us more about KP Skydivers. But you know what? I, I didn't realise how big they were. It was only when I researched them recently that I, that I realised... My God, they were big enough for a TV advert. I, I thought they were a little sort of also round. Now, apparently, they were really big. No, skydivers were great. They, they were sort of like Cousin Crisp to Space Raiders. In fact, they came in a lot of the same flavours. I think sort of beef, uh, salt and vinegar and cheese and onion, I think. And tasted very much the same. But skydivers kind of had the edge for me at that age. Well, they were called skydivers. But when I think back now, they looked a bit more like the corn dolly thing from Blair Witch Project. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't resemble a sky skydiver in any way shape or form i think they did to me simply because they were called skydivers and kind of my mind could make the leap but yeah when you actually think it's that, that's actually quite a hard shape to make in uh, you know in corn yeah and the other thing about the boss i'm sure they wouldn't be allowed now because my i don't remember the other flavors too much but i remember the salt and vinegar because it was so virulent it used to take almost a layer of skin off the roof of your mouth. It was really, really strong. Oh, it's the yeah, it's the vindaloo of corn snacks. Uh, yeah, and that was the one that I liked, you know, which is kind of like probably why in curry houses now I tend to go for the hot option. You know, maybe it all started with salt and vinegar skydivers. Isn't it interesting? There was that whole thing around that time. I mean, skydivers, was anyone ever that interested in skydiving? And yet, you know, there were all those, you get those arty films, you know, that you get used as fillers on ITV where... It'd be film of somebody skydiving in close up as a camera followed him down were Fisher Price toy skydivers. There were endless attempts to make the Red Devils into a thing. And they never were. They never caught on. What was the obsession with skydiving? Yeah, it was definitely and this is a total accidental pun, by the way. It was definitely in the air at the time. 
know, yeah, I mean, there was the the beginning part of uh, all the pre-title sequence of Moonraker, which I, you know, I genuinely think is the best pre-title sequence of any Bond film. There was constantly on Jim will fix it and Good Morning Britain, the opening titles of that I've just remembered. Yeah, whereas now it's like chloroform. When was the last time you saw somebody like who was drugged with chloroform? You know, you know, a little white rag over the mouth. In the seventies, everywhere. I don't quite remember seeing that everywhere. So uh, <laughs> I'll take your word for that. Oh, you you mean in films or so on? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, every Columbo, Macmillan and Wife. It doesn't happen anymore. It's a shame. It's, a, it's one of those kind of tropes of seventies TV that I miss. So, what other short-lived high-concept crisps do you remember that never seem to get recalled now? Because I mean, obviously, everyone goes on about Monster and how, oh, they're not the same as they used to be, not as big as they used to be, until they brought them back, the same as they used to be, as big as they used to be. But there were hundreds of others that I remember. But the thing is, actually, I can't I keep meaning, you see Space Raiders around so little now, actually, that when I do, it's a, it's a nice little sort of punch of nostalgia. I keep forgetting that, they, that they're actually still out there. It's um it's nice to know that there are, there are kids being sort of poisoned by this stuff still. Well, what are they designed like now? Because as I remember it, it was quite interesting kind of chronicle of visions of the future throughout the 80s they started off with actual space invaders sort of promotion then it went a bit zig zig sputnik and then roswell alien <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what they have now as the, the the cover art i think the last time i was brave enough to um to try one i think they was i think they were still on alien gray or or sort of et pretzel design well the ones that i always remember which were Again, I'm sure that he was probably hazardous to health. Was they changed later on, and it became, I think, it became Superman and Batman. And they were much thinner on a relative scale, healthier crisps. But originally, it was Spider-Man, Superman, and Captain America, where they were huge puffed maze things of a representation of Spider-Man's mask. I, it was a circle with two slits in it. There was Captain America's shield that had a star cut in the middle of it, and Superman, which is a odd trapezoid shape with an S cut in it. And I remember sort of all feeling ill eating them they were that full of preservatives and flavoring and cornstarch and lord alone knows what but i remember the captain america ones in particular because they were the first that i ever got out of a vending machine or rather someone got out of a vending machine for me which is a very very convoluted way of linking into your next choice because that vending machine was in hospital a bit like this what's all that about oh nothing well Got all your things for the weekend? Yes, just have to pick up a few essentials. I brought you the hotel's brochure to whet your appetite. Hmm. The Cotswold St. Francis Hotel. Relax amid 15 acres of abundant rhododendrons in the oak-panelled cells of a former Franciscan priory dating back to the 14th century. Doesn't it sound beautiful? Every room has priceless medieval wall hangings, a Corby trouser press, and complimentary potpourri. And guess what? <laughs> There's a croquet lawn. I thought there might be. And tell me, is there a restaurant in the old chapel called Vespers where you sit on the original hard wooden pews? Yes. Oh, joy, I'm bounded. Six months ago, I never would have thought we'd be doing this. But I have to admit, you've changed, matured. You're really a romantic at heart, aren't you? Yes. Yes, I am. The machine, the gents, was empty. Do you want me to slip out to bed? I don't think this will be quite burnt into the, the comedy-loving national consciousness, but nonetheless, this is a popular series that I think ran for a couple of years in the early 90s. Steve, what is it? Well, it was uh, a series by Andrew Marshall, who everybody will know as the one-time writing partner of 
David Renwick. And he did this while his bigger success, 2.4 Children, was going on. It shared a lead actor in Gary Olson. It also starred Roger Lloyd Pack and Deborah Norton from uh, Yes Prime Minister and a bit of Fran Laurie, uh, Victor Maguire. And it was set in a hospital. It was essentially kind of Richard Gordon's Doctor series, but given a kind of an edgy Thatcher era, although it's not Thatcher era, sort of edge. You know, it's full of sort of little barbs towards what was, what was going on with the NHS at the time. But essentially, it's just a very good, funny series with, with really good lines. It's not as kind of subversive to the genre as 2.4 Children, but it's still kind of a, a bit of an overlooked gem. Well, it's interesting that to me, it's kind of almost a textbook example of there were quite a few comedy series around that time that went for this same gambit, which was more a sort of verite thing about a lot of them were about people's working lives where they tried to inject the note of you couldn't really say they were comedy dramas but it was putting a bit of drama into comedy it wasn't just absurd situations it was like every single one was about real lives I think of things like Chef the Gingerbread Girl Over the Rainbow Dressing for Breakfast I'm sure there were more that you can remember well yeah I think this is kind of I think sitcom moving towards where it would would eventually go which is the eradication of the studio audience I think kind of like the 90s is that segue period between kind of what what it was and the the sophistication of where it would go i'd also remember that 90s was when uh, force and horses went to 45 minutes which was very important in just giving those characters breathing space to sort of grow so i think there was a lot of sitcom writers that were trying to sort of um jump on that bandwagon it's interesting that obviously andrew marshall wrote it and as you say he was probably better known well he was certainly better known at that point for writing a lot with david bremwick but it started a couple of days after their very last joint project which was if you see god tell him which couldn't be more different from this really and again it's a series that's i think there are reasons i've been swept under the carpet it's a bit gruesome it caused some trouble at the time because he gave toys to children in the shopping center didn't he and there were some complaints about that it's a very macabre sitcom and it really had it in for broadcasters and the advertising industry and I do wonder if health and efficiency was almost him reacting to that himself thinking i need to do something completely different to this no it's been a while since i've seen if you see god tell him but i think that was a series that, that seems about sort of 10 years before it's time but i think it's definitely with with health and efficiency it was andrew marshall kind of playing safe you know there's a bit of kind of like satirical edge to it but essentially it's a wholesome 8 30 bbc one sitcom what i remember about it was it was quite pointed about the idea of monetizing the nhs and it kind of argued it from both sides i thought there were two definite factions in the characters there were those that saw it as a necessary thing and those that saw it as an evil thing. And it's interesting that not much has really changed since then. You know, it was a topic of hot concern, but it's one that stayed so. Well, actually, yeah, re- re-watching it, the series that it most reminded me of was A Very Peculiar Practice, actually. I mean, although it, it appeared sort of about eight years after that, it's sort of addressing the same sort of Thatcherite policies. But actually, very few of the characters in it are that likeable from either side. You know, on the on the bureaucratic sort of money-grabbing accountancy side, you've got Deborah Norton and you've got Roger Lloyd Pack's uh, sort of scalpel-happy surgeon. And on the kind of left-wing, in inverted commas, side, you've got Sir Gary Olsen, who's just sort of this sort of man-child. It's sort of fair to both sides by being unfair on both sides. And of course, one other interesting thing is it was actually a spin-off from 2.4 Children, which I don't think anyone remembers now. Do you know what? I did know this at one point and i had completely forgotten there there was a time when i used to watch 2.4 children episodes 
on an almost monthly basis. So yes, I do remember that. It was Victor Maguire's character is the is the common thread, isn't it? Although why he doesn't when he meets Gary Olson's character in two point four children go, Oh, you remind me of my colleague we'll sort of skip over that. But yes, technically they, they share a universe. Anyway, moving swiftly on from I would say I'm a fan of David Remrick and Andrew Marshall, which makes it all the more strange that I don't really remember health and efficiency that well. But in the early nineties there was probably nobody I was a bigger fan of than this lot, and yet until you sent me your list i have forgotten that these two songs existed interest completely to the extent that I don't think I even heard these songs bootlegged for a number of years. Steve, people won't believe you, but who was that? That was officially, it was the Stone Roses. These were the two songs that they played at their final Reading gig. So these are technically post-Squire songs. So whether you accept them as Stone Roses songs when you know that they were written by Ian Brown and Aziz Ibrahim, the short-lived replacement guitarist you can decide whether they're sort of canon or not but i was there at that final gig which is has sort of gone down in infamy as one of the worst gigs of all time and there were apparently people crying in the crowd i don't remember it like that i was a, i was a massive roses fan but i remember it as being quite a sort of buoyant and quite triumphant gig and from the reaction of the people around me but they did play these two songs which was terribly exciting and kind of pointed the way towards you know we didn't know that they were going to split up obviously at the time so this pointed towards wow this could be the sound of their third album yeah and uh, until until maybe about sort of five years ago i hadn't heard them since 96 so yeah it was just nice to see hear them again well ian brown did do one of them which was ice cold cube on his first solo yes, album it, but high times has sort of been erased from history yeah totally ice, uh, ice cold cube was redone given a much sort of it's slightly reordered and given a much fuller sound for his first album but apparently lyrically it's about john squire so i don't think i don't think that's ever going to be sort of sung again but high time yeah it's not a great it's not a great song and not one of their best so yeah it's uh it, but, but it, it is one of the few Rose's songs that was never been studio recorded. Well, I do remember Select describing it as sounding like Biss's first rehearsal tape with Bill Tarmy on vocals. But the reason I remember that was Select did a full page, minute by minute breakdown of that gig. I think that was where the reputation, you know, the famously disastrous reputation originally came from was probably that article. And it was, to someone who wasn't there, it was quite a funny piece. You know, it was talking about Waterfall going worryingly heavy metal and Robbie Maddox, who was the 
replacement yeah. drummer for Rennie. He kept shouting, woo, and here we go. And it sounded horrible. But there was a bit I really took issue with, and it's so interesting to think of in retrospect, was they made fun of Ian Brown shouting between songs, take those Union Jacks down, I don't want to see them. And they were kind of, ah, look at the square, he's not joining in with our Britpop fun. But he wasn't alone, because around the time of Britpop, there were all these people who, they hadn't obviously been stars in the punk era, but they'd grown up through punk and had started performing not long after, like Ian Brown. The other one was Edwin Collins, who did a couple of songs that he did Keep On Burning, which is about burning the Union Jack. And Adidas World, where it says, I tried it once or twice, but unless I got it wrong, you can't defeat the enemy by singing his song, which I think is quite a pointed swipe at the Britpop bands. But they were all saying, hang on, we're not on board with this, you know, jingoistic stuff. And everyone was saying, oh, you you, you old moaners, you know, let us have off. And then it's interesting to see what happened in the wake of that. That's all I'll yeah, say. Yeah, because they, you know, obviously the Roses and Abraham Collins, they were about 10 years older than the, most of the, the Britpoppers. But of course, the people writing for Select were the same ages as Ian Brown. They were probably, in all honesty, on board with the oldies, but their readership were 18 to 25. And, um, you know, they were totally giving them what they wanted to, to read, I think. Which slight sort of ge- generational schism between the Manchester and shoegazing lot and, and the new Britpoppers. Well, that's why I never thought the Stone Roses should have allowed themselves to get anywhere near the whole Britpop thing, because... It was always going to end embarrassingly. They were idolised by, I can't really say the previous generation up, because I was, you know, very much into both of those movements, the Manchester and the Britpop thing. But there were yesterday's news, and they'd been away for a very long time. And they were always going to be found wanting getting involved with that whole scene, really. And certainly, I think what really underlines that to me is just a personal thing, is I, like I say, I was so excited to hear what they'd do next. When I heard Second Coming, my initial reaction was... Oh, right. And steadily after that, I remember they did the tour not long after that, where I genuinely, it was the the classic thing of, I was the one who got the door shut in his face at the box office. The last ticket was sold to the person before me. I remember thinking, do you know what? I'm actually not that bothered. You know, I've been to see them several times when they were at their height, and there was actually Spike Island as well. And I thought, I don't actually care anymore. I mean, that's pretty sad, but it also shows that things have moved on. Their musical reference points at that point in time were so unfashionable in terms of rip pop you if you look at the, the singles from that final album so you've got love spreads which is obviously kind of led there's a there's a heavy led zepp influence that the whole second coming you got begging you which kind of feels more like a kind of chemical brothers you know song a few years before they actually came along 10 story love song okay that that could have come off the first album but essentially kind of like their soundscape at the time was totally on a different planet to, to everything else around. Yeah, so you know these two songs they get they get a, the, the whole gig gets a bad rap, but I was there and it was a pretty brilliant Sunday night. Well, I'm wondering if your Sunday nights ten years previously to that would be as much fun because you might have been watching this. Had you any reason to believe, Miss Ashby, that Patrick might be contemplating taking his own life? No, I hadn't. The death of his parents had been a great shock, of course, but he seemed to have accepted that very well. On this particular Saturday afternoon, had he behaved unusually at all? Did he appear depressed or unhappy? On the contrary, he was looking forward very much to going bird-watching up at Melchard Quarry. Alone? Yes. Did he spend a lot of his time on his own? Yes. He and Simon generally had entirely different interests. He was quite often out all day with his binoculars and a packet of sandwiches. 
Birdwatching pause, Simon. His tastes are mechanical. Right, blood looks all round, I'm sure. This sort of thing used to be on BBC One week in, week out, all year round. But this is one of the lesser examples of Sunday classics. Steve, what was that? That was Brat Farrer, which was produced by Terence Dix in 1986. It was based on an old, I think, um, Josephine Tay novel from the 40s. But this has given us sort of a, a, an 80s update. And it stars Mark Greenstreet, who some of your listeners may remember from Time of the Rally, and Trainer, playing dual roles as somebody who, as a sort of con man who's worming his way into a family to claim an estate. Yeah, based on a real-life case called the Titchborne Claimant, apparently. Well, the novel was, Brat Farrow was based on the novel, but that, that's just a, an additional bit of pointless trivia there. Well, it's interesting to say, I mean, the Sunday classics were, I think they went on from the early 70s until probably around 1990, and there were lots of famous adaptations and lots of famous novels and some interesting ones as well because they, they did things like The Diary of Anne Frank, I remember. They barely get mentioned now and you'd think they'd be more well-remembered than they are because you mentioned Terence Dix there who was heavily involved with Doctor Who for a long time. I think anyone who ever had any of the tie-in paperbacks will know his name. Also, they were produced at one point by Barry Letts, who was the what we'd now call the showrunner of Doctor Who for pretty much his most successful five-year stretch of the original incarnation. I'm sure there are people furious, like trying to punch the podcast now, saying, how dare you, it was Hartnell's first series, stroke, City of Death, stroke, whatever. But let's not get into all of that. And also, they tended to bring in directors, behind-the-scenes people, even cast members from Doctor Who. So it wasn't quite additional presence within the Doctor Who universe, but it was almost like an adjunct to the series. And it's surprising that people don't have more interest in them, really. I mean, which ones do you remember? Do you know what? Actually, very few, because most of them were period pieces. And even today, I, I have a sort of weird sort of bias against them. But because Brat Farrow was a contemporary thing, that kind of sparked my interest. In fact, actually, I mean, I, the, what, the version that I watched recently, it's still my off-air. But I don't know what possessed me to start recording it anyway, because I wouldn't have been aware of the novel. And I don't think it's ever been repeated. That's the one that really sticks out in my mind. And I think it was actually one of one of the last ones. Barry Letts had left the team by this point, and Terence was promoted to producer, which I gather he wasn't very happy with. He's not, a, he's much more of a script man. But yeah, generally they weren't, they weren't known for sort of doing contemporary novels, even though this was a 40s novel sort of contemporised. Do you not remember their Pinocchio from 1978? I don't, I don't know. Actually, the only other one I remember is their Oliver Twist, simply because I knew the guy, the kid who played Oliver Twist. So you didn't know the puppet that played Pinocchio? <laughs> Anyone who saw it, it's burnt into their memory, so I assume you didn't see it. It was an actual real puppet, a really sort of horrible, gnarly one as well, with human actors. And he was added into the live action using an effect called Scene Sync, which again, Doctor Who fans will know a lot about. It was also heavily used in the first Star Wars film. And it's a horrendously screechy thing, and this horrible, terrifying puppet just randomly leaps in the air shouting, Wee! <laughs> And I remember, I was very young when it was on. I wasn't keen on it at all. And I used to dread it being on at the weekends because I didn't want to, anyone to know that I was terrified of it. And then on Blue Peter, they did the behind the scenes feature. And they basically went, and here he is. And the Pinocchio puppet walked out. 
and had the conversation with the presenters. There was no escape from it. I mean, I'm guessing one of the reasons you might have recorded it might be because of Doctor Who links. Were there any other programmes that you watch purely because somebody involved with Doctor Who was involved? And did you eat McCoy crisps just because of Sylvester McCoy? Uh, no, no, it wouldn't have been that, simply because I, 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 I sort of dislike Sylvester McCoy's Doctor so much. But uh, certainly there are DVDs I've certainly bought, whether it be Moonbase 3 or Doomwatch, the Monocle Mutineer, you know, whatever, just because they've got a Doctor Who connection. Often, like with Moonbase 3, I wouldn't even finish the first episode, but, you know, the BBC got my money. Well, we're kind of avoiding not so much the elephant in the room as the big brain behind the door in the terms of another Doctor Who link in this story, which is poor old Mark Greenstreet, who could almost have been a looks unfamiliar choice in himself, because... Like you say, Brat Farrow was very popular. Around that time, he seemed to be becoming quite a name. And I remember he was actually talked about as a potential James Bond. And then he was in Time of the Rani, Sylvester McCoy's first Doctor Who story, playing a very annoying alien called Icona, possibly the most punchable character in the whole of Doctor Who. And that that's no mean feat. And as far as I can see... That almost killed his career. Well, I mean, he was—he was—he's a pretty stiff actor, even in good stuff. Even in this, he's not great. When you marry him to Pip and Jane Baker lines, he's almost comatose. But he did—he ha- did have a, a stint in Trainer afterwards, which was sort of like the sort of Howard's Way replacement, set in the world of horses, which is very similar to his role actually in uh, Brat Farrow, which is very horse-centric. Well, moving on to your last choice now, which isn't really so much an adaptation of a book as a book adapting a real-life person for no discernible purpose. Speaking of business, you have not yet stated yours. We want to find a haunted house for you, sir. A haunted house? What makes you think I want a haunted house? We understand you want to find an authentic haunted house to use in your next suspense picture, sir. The three investigators desire to assist you in the search. (laughs) I have people searching for a proper house at this moment all over America. I'm sure they'll find me the right house for my purposes. But if we could find you the right house here in California, it would be a lot simpler to make your picture here, sir. I'm sorry, my lad. It's out of the question. Okay, Steve, what was that? That was Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators, a long range of books uh, published in the 60s and 70s, in which three sort of teenage private eyes are assisted in their investigations by none other than Alfred Hitchcock. I was going to ask, did he actually appear in them or did he just lend his name to them? Because I couldn't decide whether it was just a selling point or whether he actually popped up in the books and it actually just said, da 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 in big letters. No, he does actually appear. I mean, he mostly he sort of bookends them. You know, he's sort of a sort of a, like a mentor figure or sends them off on their investigations. What was kind of odd was the fact that they never, to my knowledge, used him on any of the front covers. This is a guy whose who's silhouette was famous, you know, let alone his actual face. You know, maybe the, the rights didn't extend to, to his image, perhaps. But I, you know, I'd be amazed if he even signed these off or was it possibly he was even aware of them. I, I have no idea... <laughs> Uh, how, how this even came to be. They were written by, I think, different authors. I think the, the, the guy who created them wrote about the first six. Well, apparently, it was Robert Arthur Jr. who created the three investigators. Literally, I've been reading up on this, just thought that Hitchcock would be a selling point. And apparently, his state maintained some of the rights as well. Uh, isn't that interesting? That, that In the 1960s, you could sell a range of books to kids by invoking the name of a film director. It's like It's like doing a 
series of novels now with kind of David Fincher and the three investigators or Wes Anderson and the three investigators. Do you not remember Michael Witness choose your own adventure books in the 80s? But, you know, but then I, you know, I suppose back then, you know, you had Clapperboard, you know, which was treating kids and as potential sight and sound, you know, future sight and sound readers. Clapperboard would have, you know, little features on foreign movies or Ealing films or, or whatever. So perhaps people were more sort of film literate, you know, and not just about glamorous movie stars back then. Yeah, I don't remember actually ever reading this. I remember starting to read one, which is odd because I quite liked detective novels. I didn't really like novels with kids in there. I liked Nancy Drew, but I think kind of I had sort of a if you can have a literary crush, I had it on Nancy Drew, which is why I liked her books. I didn't really like ones where kids investigated. I remember trying to read one of these, which I think was called The Mystery of the Vanishing Treasure, and suddenly could be stolen from a museum, and it somehow started to involve an old lady who said there were gnomes in her garden, and then there actually were gnomes in her garden, and gnomes were involved in the crime, and I thought, I'm going back to Nancy Drew, thanks. They're all a bit, they're all quite sort of, scooby Dooish. a lot seem to be setting up some kind of supernatural situation which would have a very rational kind of scooby-doo kind of mask pulling moment for, for me the way into it it, feel, it felt like a little kind of entry point when i was about sort of 11 or 12 into a kind of an adult genre it seemed to be that they were little sort of i don't know colombo mysteries for kids it's a little sort of a gateway what's surprising is there don't seem to have been any adaptations of them until relatively recently which is, is odd, especially given the Hitchcock level involvement, because you would have thought somebody would have thought of doing a film series at some point, but apparently not. And yet, well, I mentioned Nancy Drew before, you know, there was the Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys mysteries were very big in the 70s. Again, that's something that's almost completely forgotten now. But, you know, with that, you had that extra guessing game of trying to work out which of them it would be that week, because the opening titles didn't really give it away. Thank you for this. I, I literally haven't thought about this in 25 years. All you need to remember is Pamela Sue Martin sort of running a bit, then stopping, looking around, then running a bit more. Who played the Hardy Boys? Was it Parker Stevenson, one of them? And one of David Cassidy these brothers wasn't it, it was one of them. My, I mean, if i recall the three investigators were, were they were definitely inspired by the hardy boys and nancy drew but but they never had that sort of level of fame do you remember who all three of them were do you know what? I see, when i researched this it, the names absolutely came back to me and i the, the names are fantastic because there's, there's, there's a sort of sliding scale of interestingness uh, in them so there's jupiter jones which is a fantastic name you know straight out of the stan lee sort of book of character names peter crenshaw was he from the projects <laughs> so you got jupiter jones peter crenshaw and bob andrews which just sounds like a sort of local tv weatherman was he the tech guy, he was like, he was the bookish one yeah so that, you know so so jupiter was the kind of he was a ch- i think he was a child actor or the, there was some kind of glamorous connection to his life peter crenshaw was a sort of i think his father was a stuntman so they all had sort of apart from bob i think uh, they all had sort of connections to hollywood so they had that sort of la glitter all over it well that makes it all the more peculiar still that nobody thought of doing a film of them but steve do you think there's any chance of me doing a three investigators graphic or anything <laughs> uh well no yeah possibly yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get on the phone to gary a now well on that note i'll let you get on with the security commission for that steve it's been a pleasure thank you my pleasure It's free, a collection of columns, features and much more, lots of it about Doctor Who. More details, timworthington.org.